Well, happy Father's Day. Uh, today is the day where we honor all of our dads, and uh, if your dad is with you, you have the privilege of being with your dad today. Make sure that you give them a hug and you let them know how much you appreciate them. Uh, if you're far away, give them a phone call. Uh, I know that uh, today we're especially thankful for all of the dads who sacrifice so much, who show their family what it looks like to be men of integrity, to lead their families well, to love them, to sacrifice. Uh, I know for other people, maybe you've recently lost a dad, and so today is a difficult day for you. And still others, the thought of Father's Day is, is hard because you have a strained relationship with your dad, or maybe he's hurt you or left you. And, and so if that's you, I just want you to know that you have a Father in heaven who loves you unconditionally, who loves you perfectly, who will never leave you. And I hope that today you will accept and experience the depth of his love for you. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, we are in a series of messages we're calling Summer Blockbusters. Uh, we're looking at uh, the book of Jonah, and uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 pretty quickly today, make some comments as I go, and then I'll use that as a springboard for the bulk of our discussion together. So verse 1 of Jonah chapter 3 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Aren't you grateful for second chances? Uh, some of us, we, we, we wander from God, we go away, and, and, and we get to this point where we realize that, that we, we need to come back, we want to be in fellowship with God, and we think, have I gone too far? Is there any way that God could still love me? And the answer is always yes. God's mercies are new every morning. We find that his word comes to us again a second time. Verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now, here's the thing about second chances. God will take you right back to that place where you said no. Sometimes you want to ignore that. You have a little argument with God, you go away, but, but you want to be in fellowship with him, and so you just kind of pick things up like as if nothing ever happened. But repentance doesn't work that way. You come to the point where you realize that you were wrong and he was right. And God's not going to take you anywhere until you go back to that place where you said no and you tell God yes. Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Okay, now get this picture. Jonah has been in the belly of the fish for three days. For three days, he constantly and continually has had the gastric juice from the fish's stomach washing over him. So when he gets vomited out onto dry land and goes into Nineveh, his skin is bleached white. His hair is all white. It's like glowing like an angel. So you can imagine when he goes into Nineveh, he's got everybody's full attention. All eyes are on him. And he has an eight-word message. In Hebrew, it's only five words. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Here's the question. What made the Ninevites believe? What was so compelling about this eight-word message? We don't know for sure. But it had something to do with the fact that God had sovereignly appointed this moment. 
Now, there are some historians who talk about some unusual astronomical activity, some natural disasters that were happening in and around Nineveh at this time that may have contributed to this. But what is clear is that God took these eight words and he made them so clear and so urgent to these people that they repented. Verse 7, this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. People and animals. Make the, put, put sackcloth on the cows too. Make them fast. You're thinking, what, what did the cows do wrong? Nothing. But you know what a cow does when it's hungry? It moves. You ever heard a, a bunch of cows mooing together? It's really loud. And so this contributes to the, to the communal, the, the corporate sense of mourning here. But the same with sackcloth. It's not like sackcloth is God's fashion of choice, but what it does is it represents an inner heart of torment. It continues, the proclamation says, let everyone call urgently on God. Now up until this moment, Nineveh has boasted about their might. They've boasted being mighty in their strength, mighty in their riches, mighty in their army. Now they are mighty in humiliation and repentance. Verse 8 continues, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the the destruction he had threatened. Why did God relent? Because he is a God who is, overflows with compassion and mercy. God, ne- God never delights in judgment. Ezekiel says God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but he delights in giving mercy. And I love this picture of God. If you just give God half a chance, he overflows and overwhelms you with mercy. You see, when, I'm, when I get upset at one of my kids, but I suddenly see in them a genuine brokenness or or repentance, not just because they got caught, not not just because they got in trouble, my heart goes out to them. My my heart overflows to them. And that is how God is with you. Now there's a lot of different directions we could take this passage today. But I want to use this passage to reflect a little bit on the nature of how God uses us in other people's lives. You see, there are four major purposes or themes of the book of Jonah. One purpose is to show how God pursues sinners, to show how he's pursuing you. We've already talked about this. We said, I am Jonah. I am Nineveh. The second major purpose is to contrast the difference in God's heart for lost people and ours. Remember, Jonah wants to destroy his enemies. God wants to save them. The book of Jonah is to be read as an indictment against the religious community. Sadly, it's an indictment against the church in our day as well. We are so often to say, yes, God is for these people, but he's not for these people. But God's heart is for everyone. The third major purpose is to give you a glimpse of the real Savior, the true and better Jonah, which is Jesus. Jesus did everything right that Jonah did wrong. Jesus went into the storm of God's wrath, not because of his disobedience, but because of our disobedience. He was in the earth for three days for us. 
the fourth major purpose of Jonah is to show you how God uses people in the world. And that's really what I, what I want to focus our attention on today. God using you to bring people to himself is what we call evangelism. Now, I know some of you who are here today who don't normally come to church, you're saying, see, this is why I don't normally like coming to church. Because all you Christians, all you want to talk about is how you want to convert the rest of us. If that's how you feel, just rest assured that this makes most believers uncomfortable too. I've heard a definition of evangelism is two very nervous people talking to each other. The person being talked to is nervous and the person doing the talking is nervous. See, most of us, we are paralyzed when it comes to evangelism. You're like, I I don't know where to start. I don't know exactly what to say. You're terrified about saying something wrong. You're terrified about um, creating some very awkward um, social moment. You know what I'm talking about? I get it. I've, I've been there before. Listen, I can do socially awkward like nobody's business, okay? Here's the deal. God uses normal people to do his work. Some of us, we think that we've got to be uh, qualified, we've got to be gifted, that we've got to be an expert in in one area. And if you've ever just thought to yourself, I'm just a normal person, hey, you're in luck because God uses normal people. Not eloquent people, not qualified people, but normal people. And you can be an effective tool for God to use, and you will, if you will simply believe two things that we find in this story. You have to believe, first of all, that salvation comes from the Lord. We read that last week in Jonah 2. Think about it. Jonah preached an eight-word sermon. That's it. His heart wasn't even in it. He wasn't even passionate about what he was saying. It wasn't even a good sermon. He didn't even tell the people to repent. Yet the people responded in mass revival. Why? Because God worked in their hearts. The Bible teaches us that God works in people to bring them to repentance. That's not something that you and I can do. God is the one who creates hunger in their hearts. God is the one who arranges circumstances so that people want to know about God. He is the one who gives them faith. Let me show you quickly in Scripture how this is true. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. That word in in 2.8 there, the word this, it refers to the entire previous sentence. It refers to the whole process of salvation. It means that it's not just Jesus' death that is a gift to us. But faith to believe is a gift of God to us. Now, now those verses may make your mind hurt a little bit. It might even raise some more questions. But it should also make you relax. That we should all just take a deep breath and realize that the pressure is not on us. It's not on you to convince people. God is the one who does the convincing and the persuading. Listen, you can give somebody the finest presentation of the gospel they've ever heard, and if God is not working in their hearts, then it will not have an effect. At the same time, you can give the lousiest presentation of the gospel ever, and God uses it. I know this firsthand. There have been times where I've been preaching, and I feel like, man, I'm I'm nailing it. Like, I'm saying everything that I want to say. 
It's coming out right. I feel like God's using me, but then there, there, there's no, no visible response. It feels like it's falling on deaf ears. And I'm like, God, what's going on? There have been other times where I haven't felt good. I'm preaching, and it feels like I'm fumbling over my words. Nothing's coming out the way that I want it to. I, I, as words are coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm bored right now. I can't imagine what the people listening are thinking. And afterwards, people come up with tears in their eyes. Say, God spoke to me. God convicted me. God's doing something in my life right now. See, people are not converted by our eloquent speech or the pervasive powers of the flesh, but people are converted by the power of God. You see, church, at the end of the day, we're not dealing with good people, we're not dealing with bad people who need to be convinced to be good. We're not dealing with skeptics who need to be persuaded. We are dealing with dead people who need to be raised to life, and only the power of God can do that. So in one sense, just relax. The weight is off your shoulders. Because salvation comes from whom? Say it with me. Salvation comes from the Lord. The second thing we have to believe to be an effective witness is that faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing, and it comes only from hearing, and hearing from the Word of God is what Romans 10, 17 tells us. You see, the instrument that God uses to bring about life is his word. The word of God is not just information. It's not just commands. It has a power in it. It is a power. There's all kinds of analogies in this in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 4 says the word of God is like the ray of the sun bringing life to the earth. 2 Timothy 3 says it's like the breath of God that creates life from nothing. 1 Peter 1 says it's like an imperishable seed of life that burst into fruit in dead places. So the Word of God is not just information, it's not just commands. The Word of God has in itself the power for you to do those things. Think of it like when Jesus commanded the, the lame man. We said, rise, pick up your mat and walk. Now that's a command, but how did the lame man obey that command? Like, I could command a, a lame man all day long to get up, and he won't do it. Even if I said it in the most eloquent way possible, even if I told some funny jokes to go along with it, it still wouldn't work. But with just the word of Jesus, there was power to obey that command. His simple words had in them healing. It gave the lame man the ability to leap to his feet and to run with joy. So here's the important part for you. The Word of God can't do its work where the people haven't heard it. The Word of God can't do its work where the people haven't heard it. Which means that our objective is to get the Word of God into people's lives and get them into the presence of it because that's when God can do His work. Now I know some of you are thinking, hold on, hold on, time out. Shouldn't our objective be other people's salvation? Now listen, I understand what you mean by that. But this is where some of that unsustainable burden comes from that we often place on ourselves. See, my objective is to get them into the presence of the Word of God. And God's Word does the work from there. Isaiah says that God's Word will not return to him void. It will accomplish the purpose for which it was set. See, church, God is at work all around you. Just like he was in Nineveh. But there is a part that only you can do. I think most people live with this, this myth. That they think that God just magically and mysteriously is bringing people to faith in Christ. And they just, boom, they just appear in church. God is at work around you. But there's one thing that he will only do through us. 
and that is speak the word of God. Now let me give you kind of a deep thought here. I want you to track with me quickly, okay? In the book of Acts, the only people who, who share the word of God are humans. Now if you've read Acts, you know that there's a lot of crazy, wild, miraculous things that God's power is doing in that book. But the word of God has to be given by a human. We see this in a very dramatic way in Acts 8, Acts 9, and Acts 10. Acts chapter 8 is the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch is leaving Jerusalem. He's on a desert road towards Gaza. He's sitting in the back of a chariot. He opens up a scroll, and he's reading from the book of Isaiah. He's reading Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy about the Messiah, the suffering servant, who will, who will give up his life for the sins of the people. Philip is doing successful ministry in Samaria, and just like that, God teleports Philip, and he shows up in the middle of the desert. He's got to be thinking, what am I doing here? And then he sees a chariot come. He goes, ah, this is why I'm here. And so he hops up into the back of the chariot. He begins reading with this Ethiopian eunuch. He shares the gospel with him. The eunuch says, look, here's water. What's preventing me from being baptized? And he baptizes him. Acts chapter 10. There's a God-fearing man named Cornelius. He's seeking God. An angel appears to him and says, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers. And he basically tells them, go meet up with a guy named Peter and he'll share the gospel with you. At the exact same time, Peter's on the other side of the city. The city's Joppa, by the way. Same place Jonah was. God appears to him. He's up on a rooftop. He's given a, a dream. It's a very weird dream where this giant white sheet comes down out of heaven. And there's all these animals, unclean animals, wrapped up in the sheet. Think pigs and dogs and squirrels and all these other, other animals. I call it Peter's pigs in a blanket dream, okay? And God essentially tells him all animals are, are, are clean. Go and, and speak to Cornelius and share the gospel with him. So he goes to Cornelius, shares the gospel message with him. Cornelius and his entire household are baptized. Now, do you ever think, why didn't the angel just tell Cornelius the gospel? Why all the work for Peter to do it? In between Acts 8 and Acts 10 is Acts chapter 9. It's a story of Saul's conversion. He's on the road to Damascus going to persecute Christians. He's knocked off his donkey by, by a bright light, and, and the risen Lord Jesus appears to him from the clouds. says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He, he tells him to go into the city, and there will be a man there named Ananias. Ananias shares the gospel with him, then baptized Saul, who we know as Paul. Why when he was blinded, why when he fell down off his donkey, when, when the risen Lord Jesus appeared to him, why not just have that conversation then? Why, why send him to Ananias? The point being made in dramatic fashion is that the word of God has to be spoken by a human. But God is all around you doing the rest. And if you would just open your eyes to those two facts, that salvation comes from the Lord and that faith comes by hearing and hearing only from you, then I think it would have the most profound effect on you and make you into a bold, confident, and effective evangelist. For the last several years, I, would, I was invited to go speak to a uh, local high school football team in Texas. Uh, I, I would go there a few times a year on game day, and uh, the assistant coach invited me just to share uh, the word of God and, and to share some devotionals with, with the football players. This was a huge high school, very successful. A lot of players on this team would go on to, to play Division I football. And um, so we'd all meet together uh, in, the, in the weight room, which was connected to, to the locker room. It was voluntary. It wasn't mandated. But most of the players would come. And I'll never forget one day I was there and I was sharing a devotional thought with them. And uh, there was one guy who clearly did not want to be there. 
So he went over by the bench press, and he took the bar, just slammed it down on the rack, and uh, he got up, and uh, he walked around the entire team and walked directly in front of me, intentionally causing a scene, goes and sits down, crosses his arms, put his headphones on, and it's completely checked out. So, so I finish my, my message, I pray for the team, then they kind of get their stuff ready to get on the bus to get ready to go to the game. And I go over to this, to this guy, and I introduce myself to him and say, hey, I'm Joel, what's your name? He tells me his name's Michael. I said, Michael, I just got to ask, like, why are you here? Like, you, you don't have to be. He said, I don't know. I, I don't want to be here, but I just feel like I was supposed to be here. I said, Michael, I know that you got to get ready to go to the bus, but hey, I just want you to know, man, that, that God loves you and God cares about you. He goes, God doesn't care about me. If God cares about me, then, then why did my dad uh, get up and leave us, and, and, and why did my grandma die? I said, Michael, I, I'm so sorry to hear that. But I know that God does love you, and here's why. And just for a few minutes, I had the opportunity to, to share with him the love that Jesus has for him and what Christ has done for him. And, and I tell you that to show you that salvation comes from the Lord, but God uses us as humans to share the gospel. And if you get this, it should lead you to do two things. One is to get the word of God into people's lives. But let me give you something simple to help you with this. Whoever it is in your life that, that you're wanting to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, make out a, a list of verses for them. Some of your favorite verses, verses on salvation, and just give them a couple of them and say, hey, well, would you just read these? Would you reflect on them and would you kind of write down maybe in a sentence or two what these verses mean to you, what you think the big idea is, and let's get back together and kind of discuss it. Uh, to help you out, on, on the back of your sermon notes should be some, some scriptures there that, that can be a starter for you. But get them into the presence of the Word of God, and then let God's Word do the work. By the way, I'm not talking about doing this in some impersonal way, where you stand on a street corner and just shout at people, or you're just kind of passing out gospel tracts. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about doing this in the context of a personal relationship. I've got some good friends who have been missionaries uh, for years to the Muslim community. And in talking with them, they say that their, their evangelism strategy is not just to go up to strangers and tell the gospel to them, but it's to go and build relationships with people in the community. And once they have a personal relationship, they just invite them to, to, to read the Bible together with them. And they say the reason they do that is because they know if that if they can get that person continually and regularly reading the word of God, then God's word is going to get into their heart and God's word is going to do its work. So don't just count it as a win when they trust in Christ. Count your win by getting them into the presence of God's word. One more simple thing we can do is to bring those people to church. And not just take them to church, but then take them out to lunch afterwards. And pay for their lunch. And then say, hey, let's talk about what, what we heard today. See, one of the things that, that I try to do in my preaching is raise questions that you can answer. So if you can understand that salvation comes from the Lord and that faith comes only by hearing, that will lead you to get the word of God into people's lives. And that's something that Jonah did. Despite all of his failings, despite his ridiculous hypocrisies, Jonah got the word of God to these people and God did an amazing work. The second action that believing those things should do is to cause you to pray like crazy. Pray like crazy. If salvation belongs to God, then prayer, which is asking God to do what only he could do, that should be our greatest resource. Now this is where Jonah is not a good example of this. 
Jonah was not praying for the Ninevites' salvation. In fact, he was praying against it. In chapter 4, next week, you'll see God, he's saying, God, I'm going to preach this message, but please, please help them to reject it. Please close their hearts to what I'm saying. Jonah wasn't praying for the Ninevites, but Jesus was. What I couldn't help but think of this week was Jesus' prayer on the cross, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive the Ninevites, for they know not what they do. And God granted it. Scholar John Stott, he points out that when Jesus is praying this prayer on the cross in the Greek, it means continual action, that Jesus was constantly praying for lost people. Over and over he prayed this prayer. And that means when you pray, you are simply joining your prayers with Jesus's. So here's a simple question for you. How many people are you praying for right now to be brought into the kingdom? Or another way to ask it is this. If right now God answered every prayer that you prayed last week, would there be anybody new in the kingdom? If not, I just want to ask, do you understand the gospel? Do you understand what Jesus has done for you, what he has offered to everybody? And if so, you should pray like crazy. The, the whole point of this is that God is at work around you. God wanted to and God could save the Ninevites. The obstacle was Jonah. God wants to and God can save the people around you, but for many of us, we are the obstacle. We've never shown up to give them the word of God. Now before I close, there, there's one objection that, that I want to deal with. Because I think maybe for some of you, you have the opposite problem. You're like, Joel, but, but listen, I've been giving the word of God to people. I've been, I've been sharing my faith, and it's falling on, on deaf ears. Nobody's listening to me. What, what, what's this mean? Well, if you find yourself in a season of, of what we might call fruitlessness, there are three possible responses. One, or A, is self-doubt. And this is bad. You can just write bad next to self-doubt. This is where you think that there's something wrong with you, there's something wrong with your faith, you think that maybe God's mad at you for something. Have you ever felt like that? I, I know that I have. There have been times where I've thought, man, I, I'm, I'm spiritually weak. Of course. That, that's the whole message of the gospel. The gospel is that there's something wrong with you and you were spiritually powerless to do anything about it. But listen, the people who embrace that, the gospel says, those are the people that God gives his power to. Only the people who know that they are spiritually weak will have access to the mighty power of God. But those people who believe that they have the power in and of themselves, those are the people that will find that they are spiritually powerless. Now the other thing, when you have a season of fruitlessness, what, what it leads you to do is to make more demands on God's grace. Now I realize some of you hear that, and that makes you really uncomfortable. Because you're thinking, we should never make any demands of God. Who are we to do that? But I use that word intentionally. Because some of the greatest movements of God have come from a bold presumption on God's grace. Jesus himself said the kingdom of God would be taken by force. Just think throughout scripture. Jacob wrestling with the angel of God. Moses telling God, I'm not going up there without you. Luke 8, 44, the woman says, if I, can, if I can just grab the hem of his garment, I know that I will receive his power. Or, or in Mark 7, the, the woman who boldly asked Jesus to heal her daughter. Luke 18, Jesus compares that annoying widow, that, that persistent widow, 
who just will not let the judge go. A few years ago, we had a, a huge outdoor Easter service uh, down in Texas. We had planned months and months for this. There was going to be a, a huge egg hunt for kids. There was going to be bounce houses for kids, food trucks. And at the center of it all was going to be this giant outdoor worship service. One of my good friends, Matt, was going to preach a, a very clear gospel message. We invited the entire community to come and, and be a part of it. But as we got to the, to the week of, of Easter, we looked at the radar, and it looked like we were just going to get hit with some major storms. And so we began the, the preparations, the plans for, for plan B and plan C. And a lot of people were saying, well, let's just go ahead and move it inside. Let's go ahead and just do it now. But, but inside couldn't hold as many people as outside. And, and so Matt, he gathered us all together and just prayed. And I don't remember the, the exact words that he said, but, but the gist of his prayer was something like this. God, we know that you are a gracious and compassionate God. We know that you desire all people to come to repentance. And God, so for the sake of your great name, for the sake of your glory, we are asking that you would move this rain away. God, it would be a shame for all these people to come and not have a chance to hear the gospel message that could save their life for all eternity. So move this rain in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the week went on. Everything was set up. The day came. The skies started getting dark. We said, we're just going to keep on going. They get on stage and they say, hey, we're going to go as long as we can. We're looking at the radar. The storm's getting closer and closer. The police officers are saying, hey, we, we, we got to get everyone inside. And, and Matt just says, I'm, I'm going to go as long as I can. He gets up there, and, and I kid you not, we're looking at the radar on our phone. The, the storm is coming right to the church, and it just veers to the left and breaks off to the right and goes completely around us. And once it gets on the other, so, other side, it comes back together and, and, and just a few miles from us, downpour. But we didn't get a drop of rain. And I tell you that to say, you know what I learned that day? God honors bold prayers because bold prayers honor God. You see, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. Prayer is laying hold of his willingness. The floods of salvation come when you presume upon the compassion of God, when you hold God's compassion up in front of his face. The third and final thing that the season of fruitlessness leads us to, one possible response is to wait upon God. Again, some of the greatest movements of God happen after someone labored year after year with no fruit. I think of Adoniram Judson, the first American missionary, spent seven years in Burma. Day in, day out, was faithful to minister. Didn't see anyone come to Christ for seven years. And then after the first one, people say they started coming to Christ like rain. Listen, church, don't give up. Don't give up. There's nothing wrong with you the gospel doesn't address. In Christ, there is nothing you could do that would make him love you, approve of you, or be able to use you more. Just he, keep holding God's compassion in front of his face. Keep making demands upon his grace and wait. Wait upon the God. The bottom line is this. Jonah is what stood between Nineveh's forgiveness. Their sin wasn't the obstacle. The obstacle was Jonah's failure to give them the word of God. I told you that Jonah 2.8 was the key verse in Jonah. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from the Lord. Now here's the double tragedy from this verse. Those who cling to worthless idols, they not only forfeit their own grace, but they also forfeit the grace that God wants to extend to others as well. 
I want to ask you this. Are you keeping people from experiencing the grace that could be theirs by not praying to them, for them and by not getting them the word of God? If so, I pray that understanding God's compassion, God's heart for lost people would motivate you to do whatever you can to pray and to get people the word of God. Maybe you're here today. You're not a follower of Jesus. But as we've been talking today, as we've been sharing God's word, you, you sense your heart opening up. You, you sense that God is doing a work in your heart. We want to give you an opportunity to respond today. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you are a God of mercy, that you are a God of compassion, that you have a heart for all people. And God, you use us. What a humble thought that is. It is your power, but you use us to share your word. I pray that you would give us the boldness to go out, to share our faith with others, knowing that the pressure's not on us. You are the one who does the work. We are merely the messengers. God, I also want to pray. If there's anyone here today who's not a Christian, they're not a follower of Jesus, I pray that if they're here today, God, I pray that your word has been doing a work in their life. That today's the day that, that you have softened their heart to the point where they say, I, I want to become a Christian. I want to follow Jesus. I'm ready to, to believe in the name of Jesus, confess him as my Lord and Savior. I'm ready to be baptized in the waters of baptism, raised to the newness of life, and I'm ready to live for Jesus. God, if there's anybody here who needs to make that decision, I pray that they, you would give them the boldness to do that from your spirit, that you would be the one who's working in their lives. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to respond as, as we stand and sing together. If you have a decision to make, come forward. One of our ministers, myself, I, I'd love to talk with you. Let's sing together.